All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Psalm uh, 51. Psalm 51. If you're using one of our Bibles uh, around on the chairs around you, we're going over to page 474. 474 to Psalm 51. All right, last week we looked at a psalm of David where he had been betrayed and had to forgive people that it was very hard to forgive, right? So we looked at what it looks like to forgive people who are hard to forgive. This week we're going to be going back to the psalms and we're going to be looking at a psalm where David is the one who has betrayed and who is the one desperate for forgiveness. And we're going to be talking about um, shame and, and how um, as this psalm is written in the anguish of the moment of having his sin and his shame exposed, it, 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 it leads us to understand how we can deal in a grace-filled way with the shame we experience, how we can be set free, and, and um, we can grow in healthy ways. So let's take a look at our text. Psalm 51. Starting in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, years and years ago, when I was younger and um, a little less reserved, uh, I went to Six Flags with um, my school. This was in my previous life when I was a principal, and, and um, I went with Lauren and, and the kids, and, um, and a number of the teachers were, were good family friends. And there was one friend in particular, Tammy, um, that we had kind of a fun little war uh, going on. Um, Tammy and I liked to try to scare each other. And so I would go into her classroom at times um, before the start of school and, and wait for her to come in. And, uh, and when she came in, I would do the old jump scare thing, you know, jump out and scream or holler or whatever. And, and it was awesome. <laughs> Tammy was the best because Tammy literally would melt to the floor. Like, like she couldn't help herself. And she would just giggle, like lay on the floor 
and giggle. And then she would try to scare me, and, and it was awesome because she just wasn't very good at it. One morning at around 6.30 in the morning, I was walking up to my staff meeting, and I'm walking through the hall, and I see water running out underneath the door of the janitor's closet. And, and I'm like, what? And then I hear giggling coming from inside. And so I go and I open the door and she had climbed into the closet trying to scare me and had gotten a little confused in the dark and it hit the faucet. And she was soaked. I mean, she was soaked. And, and um, so that was, that was how we related, right? So we're walking around Six Flags and, and she said something to poke at me, something to provoke me. And, and uh, I did the only the only logical thing, right? At this point, I'm, I'm an adult. I'm, I'm a principal, right? I got teachers and families all around. And, and so I took a big swig of water and spit it at her, right? That's, that's what you do. It was an impulse that I quickly regretted, right? It would have been fine, but she stopped walking. And I sprayed several ladies I did not know right in the face. That actually happened. Um, now, here's the thing. I, I don't like to show my embarrassment. I get embarrassed more often than people know, but I don't like to show it. Um, and, and, and this was one of those times Lauren remembers, like, she could see, like, I was glowing, right? My face was bright red. My ears were glowing. Because here's the thing, you guys. There's no explaining that, right? I, I tried, like, I tried to, like, but what are you going to Like, I'm a grown man, and I just spit in their faces. I mean, there's nothing you can say at that point, right? It's like, you can say sorry, but there is no explaining what happened. And so for the rest of the day, um, I, I realized just how small Six Flags actually is, because as we're walking around, I just have, I'm, I'm like ducking behind trash cans. I am ducking into doorways. I do not want to see them. Um, I, I don't want to, because, you know, part of it is, is embarrassment, right? But there was something going on here that was um, more significant than, than embarrassment, right? It wasn't guilt. It was shame, right? Um, I was horrified. I knew this story would spread. It was too good, right? This story was, was going to make its way around the school, um, and I dreaded the ribbing. But worse than that, um, I dreaded the loss of respect, that um, I knew I would face in that environment. I had worked very, very hard. Um, I was a young leader, and I worked very hard to, to have a certain gravitas, to have a certain amount of respectability, because that, that, if you're not respectable, it makes it very, very difficult to lead. And, and I had worked very hard to build that, and, and, and I had in that moment exposed my childishness. I had exposed the impulsiveness that... that is often in me. And, and man, it just felt like I was exposed in, in a really bad way. You guys, that's what shame is. Shame is, is when you're exposed in ways that are incredibly uncomfortable, when things that you don't want people to know are out there, and they know it. When there are things that you sometimes see and most of the time try not to see, but all of a sudden, man, somebody pulls back the curtain and, and there's just no pulling it back. And, and that, so here's the thing. Guilt's different than shame, right? Guilt is about what you do. You feel guilty for what you've done. You feel a relational weight to people that you feel like you need to pay it back, right? Um, shame is about who you are, right? Shame is this, this sense that, man, I have been exposed and I desperately need uh, to hide, right? There's something in you that is deficient or abnormal or ugly or, 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 or bad that has been exposed, 
And here's the thing. Shame can come from a couple different sources, right? Shame can come from, our, from ourselves, and, and it often does, right? Words we say or things we do um, that, that, you know, in the moment um, we're not really paying attention to, in the moment we downplay or whatever, but when they suddenly get exposed, right? So for some of you, your worst nightmare is that your internet browser history would suddenly be made public. In fact, right now, you've got chills going down your spine, right? That idea of just being exposed, that it's out there and there's no way to pull it back. Others of you, it's like when a conversation you thought was private and it suddenly made public, right? You thought you just hit reply, but you actually hit reply all. And that snarky little comment that you thought was just going to go between you and your friend is suddenly exposed to an entire group, and and you're exposed. There's no pulling that back, right? What are you going to do? Try to explain that? Try to... There's, there's, there's like, you're in that moment where there's just no words, there's no explanation, you're exposed. So shame can come from, from your own words and your own actions where you expose things about yourself that you don't want exposed. There are times that, honestly, shame can, can come to you at no fault of your own. When somebody else puts shame on you, right? Somebody that you're supposed to be able to trust uh, violates that trust, uh, for a season in high school, I lived with a closet alcoholic. Uh, it was not a very pleasant season in my life. The dude was physically threatening and emotionally and verbally abusive. Um, and, and he seemed determined to make sure to, that I knew I was a loser. Right? He just was, was just a mean uh, guy. And, uh, and what ended up happening is, is um, as much as I hated it, his voice started echoing in my head. Right? The things that he said started like those... They just started showing up. And, and honestly, there are times I still hear it. There are times that voice still comes back. The things that were said still come back. And, and here's the thing. I, I hate to feel weak. I hate to feel vulnerable. Man, that, I just feel so exposed. I feel, I just hate it. And, and so honestly, this affected me. In our early years of marriage, there was a season where uh, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't tell Lauren when something hurt me. If she said something that hurt me or if I felt like I was diminished in some way, like I would go into this place of hiding. I couldn't be honest because to be honest meant to expose this place that I had, I had locked down hard, right? I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't feel weak because when I felt weak, man, I was vulnerable. And so what ended up happening is even when I started succeeding as a leader in different places, there was always this sense that, that I was going to be exposed, right? So like you're, you're experiencing a certain amount of success, you're moving along, and it's like, man, if they just knew about me what I know about me, and there's that dread, it's only a matter of time before the shoe drops, before they know, before I'm exposed. Surely they'll see who I am and see that I am not who they think I am. You guys, this is shame and the toxic effect it can have on our souls. And here's the thing, we hate shame, right? We hate shame personally and as a culture. We avoid it, and when we feel it, we want to escape it as quickly as possible. Um, But this morning, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the gift of shame, which is going to be weird. Um, But there is something that actually very good can come from it. Shame is unavoidable. How we deal with it makes all the difference. When we deal with shame in the wrong ways, when we combine our shame with our pride, our need to protect ourselves, our need to promote ourselves, our need to... That's when shame becomes toxic. And toxic shame is the kind of shame you've internalized and it becomes part of your identity. It's no longer I screwed up, it's I am a screw up. 
I mess everything up. I fail all the time. It's, it's no longer I said uh, a, a, an impulsive word. It, it's I never say the right thing, right? It's not I, I, I failed at this. It is I am a failure. It is an internalized sense of condemnation in which we have locked ourselves up um, in this sense of, of not being enough, right? Toxic shame locks you into a prison of self-loathing. And here's the thing. When you're in that prison, you can't be loved. The prison not only locks you into a prison of self-loathing, but it locks you out. There's a wall that you build because you don't think you're worth love. You don't think you're lovable. How, how could they love me? I see myself, and I find myself abhorrent. How could they love me? You come to distrust any expression of love, and as a result, you alienate it and push it away. It is a, it is a self-made prison of self-loathing because you can't let yourself be known truly. You cannot let yourself be loved truly. So love is unavoidable. I mean, excuse me, shame is unavoidable, but toxic shame is. It has to do with how we deal with it, and I think this psalm is really going to give us an insight into that. Take a look at the heading of the psalm, because the heading lets us know the, the context of, of why David wrote this. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. All right, I need to give you a little bit of background here. Uh, you may not be familiar with the story. You can read about it. It's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. In short, David made some really bad decisions. Uh, there were some minor compromises that led to some major sin. Right? The passage starts like this. I'm going to put the verses on the screen, 2 Samuel 11, 1 and 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and the servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. All right, so there's your setting, right? David decides not to go to war. Uh, we're like, well, isn't that a good thing? Well, apparently during this period of time, the spring is when kings went to war, right? It's like when farmers go to plant or, or uh, accountants go do taxes, right? It's, it's the time of year when kings go to war. They go out and they defend their borders, and, and so they need to go out. And, and this year, David was like, eh, I got Joab. I don't need to go. Joab, you go. You lead the armies of Israel. You go take the men of Israel. You go defend our borders. I deserve a break, Right? I need a Calgon moment to carry me away. I, I, am, I have worked so hard. I've done so much. Nobody appreciates all the sacrifices I've made. I deserve some time off. I mean, we don't know what his reasoning is. We don't know what the line of thinking is. Maybe he wanted to get up on his golf game or go fishing. But, but in our text, we find him in the afternoon laying around on his couch. Okay, generally, nothing good happens when the king is laying around on his couch in the middle of the afternoon when his armies are off to war, right? He is supposed to be busy doing the things a king does, but he has detached himself and, and, and he has become restless, right? In his pursuit of leisure, he's become bored. And so as a result, he ends up just wandering around. I'll just go up on the roof and look around and see what I see. And, and in his idle time, he happens to look out and see a young woman named Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. Now, this was not Bathsheba being 
an exhibitionist. Okay, during this period of time, they didn't take baths like we take them today. This would have been a ceremonial cleansing, uh, a purification rite. More than likely, she was coming out of her menstrual period, and, and she was doing her ceremonial cleansing coming out of that. And they would often do that in their compound, in the private spaces of their compound. So it could have been out back or on the rooftop. Um, and, and it was only because David was up on his roof that he had a, a view of this. And so David sees this. And in his leisure and in his boredom, he lingers. And he watches. And he lets it take root in his imagination. And then he's like, I wonder who she is. So he sends out, who is, who is this? Oh, Bathsheba. Hmm. Maybe I should talk to her. So he sends. And she comes. And as the king we don't know how it all went down. We don't know what, what occurred. Uh, but we do know that, that he sent for her and he ends up having sex with her, which was an absolute abuse of his power. She was powerless in the face of the king. I mean, it was a culture in which women generally were disempowered to begin with, but especially in the face of somebody who had that much clout. He should have used his power to protect her. He should have used his power to be respectable, but he didn't. He abused his power and he became a predator. And... Um, and Bathsheba was the victim. He sends her back to her home. And after a little while, she sends to him and says, I'm pregnant. I've conceived. Well, now David's in a fix, right? <laughs> David's like, how am I going to explain this, right? Uriah's, her husband, is off at battle. He's off doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and she just came off her, her cleansing, which means obviously he wasn't around. Um, so let's fix this. So he sends for Uriah to come back. He's like, hey, Uriah, come take a vacation from the battle. Brings him back. He's like, give me an update on the battle. Tell me how things are going. How are you doing, man? All right, I like you so much. I want you to take a couple days off from the battle. Just go home, enjoy the comforts of home, and just do what you do, right? Go have some fun. And, and uh, Uriah leaves and, and sleeps on the steps of the king's house. And David comes out and he's like, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping on the steps of my house? And he said, the armies of Israel are at battle. How can I go home and enjoy the comforts of home while they are enduring the hardships of protecting my home? I won't do it. I won't do it. The ark of, of God is at risk, and, and I need to be there. And, and, and while I'm here, I will not go home. And David's like, oh, man, this dude's honorable, right? This dude's got character. It's a real contrast in the story. David acting so despicably and in, in, in self-interest, and Uriah really being uh, the image of, of a man of honor. So David's like, all right, I'm not done. Brings him back the next night, feeds him a feast, and gets him drunk. Like, have another drink, man. Okay, have another drink, right? Laughs, tells him stories, gets him relaxed, and then he's like at the end of the night, all right, man, go home and have fun. And Uriah goes out into the outer courtyard and sleeps. And David realizes his plan's not going to work. So he sends Uriah back to the front, and he sends a messenger with a message for Joab. He says, place Uriah at the place where the battle is the fiercest and then command all the other troops to withdraw and leave him exposed. And don't worry about it, Joab, because we're all going to die sometime. So Joab does it. And Uriah is killed. And Bathsheba hears about it. She mourns for her husband. She goes through the standard period of mourning, and then after 
that period of mourning, David brings her up to his house, makes her his wife. That's a fun story, isn't it? Isn't that a nice setting for a psalm? Yeah, hey, that's cheerful. It's ugly, you guys. I mean, it's really ugly. Um, but I guarantee you this, David didn't start out to do all this stuff. David didn't wake up one day and go, you know what, I've been honorable a little bit too long. All these people think I'm a hero. I should do something to tarnish my image. I should do something really dishonorable. I should do something that costs me standing among my people. I should do something that people for the next several thousand years will talk about. What a loser I am. I'll do that. No, see what I did? He, he took one step at a time. First, he was led by his desire, and then he was driven by his shame. I want you to catch that. First, he was led by his desire, and then he was driven by his shame. In his desire, he just simply took small compromises, right? He stayed home from war when he should have gone, probably had a sense of, of deserving, like, I deserve a break, I, I should get more credit, I should be able to rest. Then, then he let his eyes wander. It's just a, a minor infraction. I didn't make her get out on the roof and be naked. I just happened to see it, but look, I can. So he just sits there, and, and then he lets his imagination go. And, and as his imagination goes, he starts creating fantasies, and pretty soon those fantasies create a delusion in which he acts out on them. He gives himself over to sin. So let me pause for a minute. Sin. Such a loaded religious word, right? Such a loaded. How do you define sin? See, a lot of people define sin as breaking rules. God set rules, I break rules, therefore I sin, or falling short of a standard, right? God set a standard, I fall short of it. And, and here's the thing, both of those are true. It is sin when we break God's rules. It is sin when we fall short of, of His righteous standard. But I think those definitions miss the heart of it, you guys. Here's my definition for sin. It's when we try to feed our God-given desires in ways God didn't desire, design those, those desires to be fed when we try to feed our God-given desires. In other words, the desires themselves are good. The desires are actually given to us by God. De desires for, for intimacy, desires for security, desires for significance or, or pleasure or joy. Those are God-given desires, but we try to feed those desires in ways that God didn't design them to be satisfied. You know, God set up guardrails in life to protect us and lead us to blessing. We often see those guardrails as arbitrary blockades keeping us from blessing, right? It's kind of like when, when someone decides, you know, what's the big deal with sexual sin? What's the big deal, right? Who really cares what two consenting adults do? And, and surely we're beyond all that. And, 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 and God, you know, and we start thinking about God's rules, as a barrier keeping us from what's going to give us what we really want. Okay, let me remind you of something. Who created sex? God. <laughs> He's the giver of good gifts. God isn't some cosmic killjoy out there waiting to smack your hand when you try to grab something good. He, He's actually trying to lead you into the full blessing of what you were created to experience. He's the one that created the gifts. So it only makes sense that he should be able to explain to us how to get the most out of those gifts. God is saying, this is the way to the full blessing of life. It is in our pride when we say to God, I know better than you. 
It's in our pride when we say, all right, I'm going to take God's good gifts and use them in ways that the good giver didn't intend because I'm sure it's going to end up good for me. I'm sure it's going to end up better than he designed it. You guys, it's, it doesn't make any sense. A couple summers ago, I had the great privilege of going to Yosemite uh, with one of my daughters. It was an incredible trip. It was, uh, we spent several days hiking from the valley up uh, into the surrounding granite hillsides. It's a beautiful place, one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. And, um, uh, and so we spent days basically killing ourselves, just destroying ourselves, you know, hiking straight up these granite walls, four-mile hikes with a 3,000-foot ascent with 93 switchbacks to the top of Yosemite Falls, and then the next day to the top of Nevada Falls. And, and it was just, yes, I mean, I couldn't walk for a week when I got done. Uh, it was awesome. But in this park, there are several exposed granite domes, the most famous of which is Half Dome, because half of it has fallen away, and it leaves a, a, a sheer face on the front of the boulder. Now, every one of these domes is incredibly dangerous, and there are warnings all over the park. Um, one of the things that ends up happening is, is when people get to the top, um, they're full of adrenaline, right? You ever heard of that, like a mountaintop experience? You ever heard that phrase? Mountaintop experience are real. Like when you hike four hours, five, six, eight hours to get to the top of one of these things, and you actually overcome the fear, and you overcome the physical challenge, and you get up there and you're physically exhausted, man, all the endorphins just flood in, the adrenaline floods in, and you're up there and you feel invincible, right? You were just like, king of the world, right? And when you're up there, man, why'd you get up there? Well, for the view, and you're on top of a boulder, the thing with the boulders, it's really hard to get a good view because when you're looking down, you just see rock, right? It just goes, and you're like, well, if I move a little closer, I'll get a better view. And the problem with a rock is the farther you go, the farther horizon moves, right? And, and so you just are like, oh, I'll go a little farther. I'll go a little farther. I'll go a little farther. The challenge is you're not noticing the change in the pitch. Every couple of years, somebody falls off the face of one of those rocks because they just went past the point of no return. Every couple of years, there's somebody who is stranded on the face of one of those rocks. Pictures. I mean, you can look it up. Pictures of people laying on the rock like this. They simply cannot move, or they will slide down the face to their death because they went too far. It is a gradual thing in which each step seems safe. Well, that was no big deal. Well, that's no big deal. I still can't see over the edge. That's, that's no big deal. You guys... That's the way temptation works. That's the way sin works. It tempts you with something incredible just over the edge. The temptation minimizes the danger and the consequences. It fills you with this sense of, of invincibility. It, it, it totally minimizes the danger of each step and, and the reality of the consequences that will come when you take it. And it maximizes the promise, right? If I could just get over there and see that vista, it would be so incredible. Just a little farther, and it'll be so incredible. It lures you with one more step and then one more step. And you're thinking, you know, that last step wasn't that bad. I can take one more step. That's how it works. The compromises compound and each step makes the next step easier. I'm telling you guys, sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. I have sadly walked with many people who have gone past the point of no return. I sat across the table from guys who've lost it all. They lost their marriages. 
They've lost contact with their kids. They lost their jobs. And it was all for, for this temporary experience. And, and, and I weep with them. And I've asked more than one, dude, how'd you get here? How'd this happen? What were you thinking? And the answer is almost always the same. I don't know how I got here. I wasn't thinking. They are so caught up in the attraction of what's right over the edge that they lose all sense of the danger they're in and the consequences of the choices they're making. You guys, that's why God gave us a conscience. See, the conscience kicks in. And what's the tool of the conscience? Shame. The conscience awakes us to the shame of our choices. The conscience comes in, and, and it's really uncomfortable. We generally hate our conscience because it comes in, it's like, like, like it just, it's like, hey, you're not doing something very honorable right now. You're making really bad choices right now. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. This is not who you're supposed to be. The conscience kicks in, and it does so to warn us. That shame that we feel in that moment is appropriate. See, shame can be God's gift to awaken us to our danger. The problem is we hate shame, and, and especially as Americans, we hate all forms of discomfort, and we feel like every form of discomfort in our life should be able to be eliminated, right? And if shame is uncomfortable, it is the enemy. And, and so instead of going to war with the sin that is triggering our conscience, we go to war with our conscience. We go to war with what's triggering the shame to begin with. We, we start rationalizing. We start telling stories. We start explaining. We start, we start everybody else does it. There's, there's no guilt, there's no harm, no foul. See, shame is a powerful force that says you have something ugly here. And our first impulse when we feel shame is to pull away and hide. But shame can be God's gift to us to awaken us to the reality of our situation. Shame can be God's gift to us to make us aware of our, of our nakedness, that we are exposed and in danger. See, David had shame. What's really interesting is that when you look at this story, you can see both sides, right? In the beginning, he was driven by toxic shame, right? David's desire led him to make a series of, of compromising choices that led to him violating his trust with, with his kingdom, with his office, and, and with Bathsheba, right? And, and then, as a result, the shame he felt drove him the fear of being exposed drove him to take increasingly desperate steps to keep it hidden, even to the point of murder. Instead of allowing the shame to drive him back to the love of God, the shame propelled him farther away. He tried to kill his conscience by killing Uriah. Instead of allowing his conscience to expose his shame. You guys, that's, that's toxic shame. That's toxic shame. Toxic shame drives us away from being exposed. Toxic shame, man, when we're feeling toxic shame, we take that thing of shame and we lock it down and we lock it down hard. 
We try to bury it so deep it'll never come up. We try to, we try to, to hide it so, so thoroughly. We try to come up with stories. We try to come up with, we try to distance ourselves from it so far that, that it's almost like it doesn't exist. But here's the thing, toxic shame can never be buried. Because you're actually burying it in your soul. It never stops influencing you. It never stops having power over you. Toxic shame will lock you into a prison of self-loathing. You're not locking your shame away. You're locking you away. Toxic shame will lock you away from community because, because there are things in you you can't let people see. You can't let people know. You will pull away because people become unsafe. And as a result, you are distanced and locked away from the experience of love. Love is the greatest treasure in the human condition. Being loved and loving, man, that's what makes life. That's what we were created for. Everything else is secondary. Toxic shame locks you away from the genuine treasure of the human condition. Why we were created. Loving and being loved. So David had toxic shame. It isolated him made him feel like he was not worthy of being known and loved by God or by his community. David was not just hurting Uriah and Bathsheba. He was, but he was also creating a prison of shame for himself. But God wasn't content to leave him there, so the Lord sent Nathan. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven through 12, 1 says this, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, duh, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He didn't have to do this, right? He didn't have to do anything. But the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And when you read through the the account and you hear what Nathan said to David, man, it was hard. It was confrontational. And and Nathan was explaining, man, there are consequences to your behavior. There are consequences to your choices. Bad things are going to happen as a consequence of the choices you have made. But Nathan wasn't sent to judge David. David. Nathan was sent to invite David back to an experience of grace. If God wanted to judge David, he would have left David trapped and enslaved to his toxic shame, allowed him to destroy himself. Instead, he sent Nathan. He didn't listen to the internal working of his conscience, so he sent Nathan, a visitor and in the embodiment of the conscience of God, to come to him and confront him and say, man, this can't stay hidden. I'm not going to leave you in the toxic shame and the poisonous pride. I'll call you back. So Nathan was sent to reawaken David's conscience. Nathan confronted David with his sin. And it was like a a shot of cold water in the face of of a heat-exhausted climber. He suddenly came back to his senses. He suddenly saw himself and he saw what he had done. And he was overcome with the weight of his shame. He was overcome with the darkness of his soul. He was overcome with the stupidity of his actions. He was overcome with with the choices he had made. This was an incredibly uncomfortable revelation, but it was a necessary one. It was an act of grace that God reawakened him to his shame. Because as David was suddenly and horribly aware of his shame, he was also suddenly and wonderfully made aware of his need. 
See, the gift of shame. When it is redeemed by the grace of God, is humility. The curse of shame, when it is combined with our pride, that toxic shame, is self-loathing and separation from love. But the gift of shame, when it is redeemed by the grace of God, is a reawakening of our absolute dependence on God, our absolute need for God, our desperate plea for the grace of God. So here's the thing. The challenge with this. Toxic shame pulls us away. We experience shame. We hate the experience, so we pull away. We bury it. We hide it. Grace calls us to move through the shame back into the presence of God, which sounds like a horrible experience. You're like, Steve, this doesn't sound like a gift, right? A gift would be if God miraculously just took that, all that ugliness and made it go away. But that's not the way God works. God redeems and restores, but to redeem requires us to move through the shame to reach the grace. We have to own our sin. We have to see our shame. We have to come to God honestly. Unlike toxic shame, which locks us up into a world of deception, we need to be absolutely brutally honest with ourselves and before God. How do we have the courage to do that? Because the thing that shame does, man, shame comes in and it whispers in our ears. You're not worthy of being loved. You're a loser. You've been rejected. If people only knew who you were and what you've done, man, you are condemned. You are unlovable. You are damaged goods. When, when shame is whispering in our ear, how are we supposed to have the courage to come boldly and honestly with our shame into the presence of God? The only way we will do it is if the promises of God are louder in our ears than the lies of shame. Verses 1 and 2, David models for us how to do this. And and I'm going to move, but I just want you to see this because it's a bold prayer. He starts out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Have mercy on me, O God. And that's a bold prayer when you are covered in your shame. Because the last thing you feel like you deserve is mercy. But mercy, man, God, God. All right, so Exodus 34, 6. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said to Moses and then to all the people who would move into covenant relationship with him afterwards, this is who I am, right? I'll put it on the screen. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. In other words, this is who I am, right? This is who I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I am a God merciful and gracious. To to be merciful means that he doesn't give us what we deserve. To be gracious means he gives us what we don't deserve. That's who our God is. He is a God of justice. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of holiness. And He is a God of graciousness and mercy. Because His graciousness and His mercy flow from His abounding, steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase, steadfast love, is a translation of the Hebrew word hased, which is an incredible Hebrew word. It speaks of covenant love. 
right? This word does not mean I'm fond of you or I like you or I'm attracted to you. It means I choose to love you. It's a love based not in God's attraction toward us, but in his commitment to us, which is why it always says steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not dependent on our faithfulness toward God. It's dependent on God's faithfulness to us. It is an unwavering love that sees us in our shame, but is not put off by our shame. A a God who sees us in our weakness doesn't wait for us to improve it, but draws near us. It is a love that is steadfast. Paul Miller defines it as love without an exit strategy. God has bound himself to his people with a love that has no exit strategy. It is a committed love rooted in his faithfulness, not in our merit. See, David is shocked by his shame. He is shocked into an awareness of his need. And in his neediness, he's reminded of the character of God. And so he appeals to God, act according to your promises, right? That's what he says. Oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your hesed love, according to your abundant mercy, be faithful to me, even though I haven't been faithful to you. Give me mercy. Now that is a bold prayer. That is a bold prayer. When you see your shame, to come to the righteous, all-holy God of the universe and say, don't treat me according to my shame. Treat me according to your character. That's faith. That's faith. We hear the promise of God and we believe that God is who he says he is and we draw near to that God. And our only hope is that he actually is who he says he is. Our only hope is that he is a God of his head love. That he is abounding in mercy and grace. And that he is always faithful. And that leads David three times, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Three requests that are a bit redundant, but they're all coming to the same thing, man. Will you clothe me in your dignity? Because I am naked here. I am exposed. I got nothing. You guys, this is how we get the gift of shame. It's when we push into the shame assured by the faith of his promise, the faith of his character, that he is going to love me in spite of my shame. That I can be absolutely honest with God. And in fact, I am required to do so. To come honestly in my my weakness, in my failure, in my betrayal. Dependent on nothing that is in me, but everything that is in him. To allow me to see myself honestly, and yet still come without contextualizing or minimizing, without explaining. And when I do that, God meets me in my shame, and he calls me out the other side, and he clothes me with his righteousness. He clothes me with his love and with his forgiveness. Instead of retreating into my prison of self-loathing, I am delivered into the freedom of being covered in his righteousness and in his joy. I have nothing left to hide. I have nothing left to defend. Your opinion of me. What does that matter? When the God of the universe says, 
I see you and I love you. And I declare you right. I am cleansed by his love and covered in his promise. You guys, that means I am not what I have done. It means I am not what has been done to me. I am who he says I am. I am loved. I am made new. I have done shameful things. I have suffered shameful things. But I am not covered by that shame. I am covered by his love. And some of you might be a little bit of offended. (laughs) David, a rapist and a murderer, could just come to God and ask for mercy and God's going to give it? Yeah, that's the scandalous nature of grace. And what's really good news about that is that that's my only hope too. Because I'm no more deserving than he was. This morning the Spirit may be prompting you, poking your conscience, stirring your heart, quietly calling you out of your prison of shame. Will you respond? Will you allow the quiet promptings to become the vehicle through which God brings his said love to your heart and your experience? Will you pray a bold prayer like David prayed? A prayer of deep need and deep faith. God loves this kind of prayer. You know why? Because it takes him at his word. This kind of prayer... God, I take you at your word. You, I trust you are the God you say you are. So I will come. God loves this kind of prayer because it takes humility in our part to pray it. An absolute honesty about our desperate need. It, it requires faith for us to pray it. A trust that he, is, that he is who he says he is. God honors these prayers because they honor his character. So I would encourage you this morning. Stop running from your shame and push deeply into the love of God. Guys, I'm going to put some questions up on the screen for a reflection time, ask you to pray and allow God to speak to your heart. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're going to share communion in a moment. We'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that um, even though we are so easily led astray, we often try to find life outside of you in ways that are shameful, ways that hurt us and hurt others, ways that are selfish, self-serving, that your love for us never wavers that your invitation to grace never changes. But Father, your invitation to grace requires a response of faith. Your grace is extended and it is lavishly free. But it will only be experienced as we believe you are who you say you are and we take you at your word. So Father, I pray for my friends and I pray for me that we would be quick to run to grace, that we would stop trying to hide behind our pride and build our image and 
and, and, and hide behind our accomplishments and, and, and all the things we do to bury our shame. But Lord, we would make it our boast that we are loved by you. We would make it our identity that we are covered in your righteousness, that we would find our security in your steadfast love and faithfulness. And in that place of freedom, we can be absolutely humble and absolutely honest because we know that's the place of deliverance. We know that's the place of transformation. We know that that is the place of genuine freedom. Spirit, give us the courage that is required. Give us the faith that we might experience more deeply the infinite, unfailing, never-ending love of God. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.